This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we are squashing the saber-toothed tigers in episode number 120. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I am beyond thrilled to be bringing you the podcast today. I hear pretty consistently that you gals love to get guests on the podcast, and so today I am bringing you a guest. She is somebody that I look up to and respect so much, and so it was literally thrilling for me to be able to interview her for you. With that, we'll move right into it, an interview with Dr. Sarah Buckley about the power and the ecstasy of the hormonal blueprint for birth. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Sarah J. Buckley. She is a New Zealand-trained GP and family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics and family planning. She's also the mama of four unborn children and currently combines full-time motherhood with her work as a writer on pregnancy, birth, and parenting. She's also a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Queensland, and I'm thrilled to have her here. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. I've got questions. I could probably keep you for hours, but I'm going to try and stick to the questions that we got through. So, so what good. I really kind of wanted to focus on was um, one of your passions, which is the hormones of birth, because I feel passionately that women need to know about it. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful body of work. And I think what's so nice about the, the hormones of labor and birth is it really underlines how superbly designed our bodies are because there's so much kind of um, information and perspectives out there that like, birth is kind of like an accident waiting to happen and our bodies are intrinsically flawed. But when you start to look at the hormones and all the different ways in which they support mothers and babies, you really realize how, how superbly designed we are. Oh, I just I just love that. I really do. I think it's so important for women to realize that we're not in fact broken or like you said an accident waiting to happen. But uh, but that we and our babies are something that's meant to work. So how did you become interested in the hormones of birth? And did you realize just how important they were when you first started your research? Well, there's there's a few different things. I guess I've got to go back to when I was 10 and they went around the classroom and asked you want, what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I actually said an author. I wanted to write. So that's always been a passion of mine. But of course, I did medicine, which is a, a fantastic foundation because, you know, I had these experiences in my training where I attended women giving birth and different um, situations and you know and, and then I had my own babies and then I had all the kind of medical training around it and there was such a big gap between what I experienced myself and what I'd learned about birth and so I was really interested in what was that gap there how, how come birth for me was such a profoundly positive experience and I know for many other women and that's not what I got taught about it and I was very influenced by Michelle O'Don who was talking about the hormones I think I first heard him talk in like 1993 or something like that and he's been a great mentor to me so it's really a way of um, you know it's, it's a great intersection between the physical experience of giving birth and not just my experience but other women's experience and then the kind of scientific and um, medical sides of it as well and it really bridges those things beautifully because when you look at the hormones it tells us what a profound subjective experience childbirth is and and why it has to be like that why it's designed to be like that it's designed to powerfully reward not just women but in fact females of any mammalian species because that's what actually has the species survive that's what activates the reward and pleasure centers so that then that mother will be rewarded and motivated to give the care to her young, whether it's a mouse or an elephant or a woman, you know, we all have the same <laughs> neurobiology to a large extent The um, as a consequence of the same hormonal physiology. Yeah, that's, and that's really interesting. I think it is interesting to see we keep goats here on our little hobby farm and we have one of our goats is a real, she's really very crabby and personality, but she dotes on her babies, so <laughs> it's interesting to see how it transcends even personality and influences that mothering behavior. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, this is much too important to leave to personality, right? It's, got to, it's about the continuation of the species, so that's true for us as well. I mean, 
that was another thing that influenced me, Kristen. You know, I um, I was mothered in a kind of typical 60s way, like I was born in hospital and, you know, got separated from my mother. I didn't get breastfed and, you know, just those typical things that happened really. So I didn't have that imprinting, you could say, from my own experience. And then, of course, I didn't see other women giving birth. I probably never saw anyone breastfed. So I didn't have any, like, conscious memory of those things. But, you know, when I gave birth myself, everything just kind of kicked in and, and, and what I thought I was going to do with my baby, like put her in a little basket in the next room was completely the opposite to what I did and you know I knew I had that subjective experience something happened in my brain over those hours of labor and birth that shifted me such that I didn't want my baby more than like a meter away from me and you know when you look at it from a kind of evolutionary perspective of course you don't because you know if you're not if you're not in touch with your baby if your baby's not in touch with you then that's incredibly dangerous you know and that's what's hardwired into our bodies through these millions of years of, of evolution of giving birth in the wild you know so that's another part of the kind of puzzle or, or part of the perspective that I bring I studied anthropology and it's a really great way to look at childbirth like how 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 are we designed what it is what is it that's hardwired into our bodies and it kind of all makes sense because it's it's all about survival of the species for all mammals and it's all about our the commonalities that we have as mammals as Michelle O'Donnell says we, we don't need to humanize birth we need to mammalianize it <laughs> I, I find that so valuable often when I talk to women I think it's very easy relatable because most of us have had this experience in our childhood of a of a beloved dog or a beloved cat going off into a quiet, dark corner to give birth to her babies. And I tell them, you know, you're not so much different. You need the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. And that's exactly what I say, Kristen. I say, you know, the core um, requirements for birth among all mammals is that the laboring female feels private, safe and unobserved because you know in the wild that sense of being observed is a, a red flag you know if something's observing you it might not be friendly right or unlikely to be friendly so you know women in labor and again that the hormones explain this really well are in this kind of exceptional situation where you're kind of you know in a physiological natural labor and birth you're kind of in this dreamy state but you're also very switched on because you need to be switched on because just like a rustle in the leaves or a strange smell or you know, just that sense that you're being observed could be fatal for you and your baby. You know, you can't kind of defend yourself very easily and maybe you might have noticed this. You can't kind of run away or fight very easily. So there's all these um, these things that are built into the systems of labor and birth so that we we are very sensitive and we are very alert in labor even at the same time that we're kind of in labor land or on another planet as some people say. Um, apparently one of the Native American tribes, they say that the laboring mother goes out to the stars to collect the soul of her baby and bring it back. Oh, I really like that thought. That's a nice mm. thought. Mm. So you've mentioned, you know, you've mentioned your own little one's birth and how how very different it was from what you had your medical background and your teaching about birth was. Can you talk a little bit about how your birth influenced you, how they really pointed out that there was something missing in your education, so to speak? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, definitely the first one, Kristen, because you know I had, as I said, I had all this medical training, and I'd also had the the big advantage really of being present when I had when two of my friends had given birth at home, so I kind of had this other perspective on it as well, and I also noticed, you know, in my training that the women that gave birth the most easily were the ones that gave birth at night when there was not many people around when I wasn't there, you know. <laughs> that was the best thing. You know, I didn't know these women. I just had to catch the baby to tick off a box, which is not a very good setup, right? Um, so, yeah, so I noticed that the, that the more private and kind of safe, you know, in a kind of secluded, the more intimate the atmosphere, you could say, the the better the results. So so with my first baby, this is hilarious, um, I planned to have like 12 people there. Like I had a doctor, I had two <laughs> midwives, um, I had my sister coming from New Zealand, I had like three people, three supporters, and myself and my husband, and there was going to be this whole crew. And um, I remember my sister-in-law said to me, she's a home birth midwife, and she said, yeah, every extra person adds an hour to the labor. That's a good rule of thumb. And I thought, oh dear, that's not going so well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing I did actually at that point was when we had we had 
like a meeting beforehand because she was at a planned home birth. So we had a meeting before, and at that meeting I said, look, I, you know, whoever, I'm inviting you to the birth, but I might not call you. It just depends how I feel. And I think that was the most um, intelligent thing I did in the whole planning because, you know, then I had the space to, to, to not have to have this whole mob of people and to really, you know, go with what worked for me. And I think that's a really important point because you don't know how you're going to feel in neighbor, right? And it might be different one labor yeah. to another. So, you know, to have a, to have a setup that's flexible and, you know, what is going to be private and safe and unobserved for you in that particular situation? And it might be different to, well, certainly will be different to other women. Like some women might be, you know, having, having their best friend or their mother there might be the thing that makes them feel safe. And for some women, having their best friend or their mother there might be the thing that makes them feel stressed. <laughs> you know, it's going to take them out of yeah. labor, right? So it's very individual. So, yeah, I guess I learned that um, from my own, my, my first daughter, um, Emma's birth, that, you know, that, that being private and safe and unobserved was the best thing to get my labor hormones flowing. I had a very kind of unexpectedly short labor, just five hours with my first baby. And, um, yeah, that, that taught me that in a very, you know, embodied way. And as I said, the, the lesson, that the learning that something changed in my brain, like I knew something had changed through those processes of labor at birth that made me mother in a completely different way. And I've got to tell you, this is like nearly 27 years ago now. So there wasn't even a word for attachment parenting. Like, you know, there was kind of standard parenting and there were these other kind of strange things people did, like sleep with their babies. <laughs> and, and that's just yeah. what I did. And, you know, like there was no way my baby was going to be in another room. Like that was, went against every kind of maternal instinct that I had at that time so you know that that, that it was a very um, what do you say you know obvious thing that had happened to me like I was in like you know going from one one you know one situation into a completely different situation in my brain uh, something had happened there so that kind of fascinated me really how did that happen which led me to be more interested in the hormones and then you know all of my births I mean there were great reasons for all of them to be at home I was much more private and safe things flowed things that would have been you know tricky or complicated you know in some situations work or quite straightforward at home and I had all the support that I needed um, yeah all of those things and then of course you know I'm sure this is your experience too but when you have other children it's so beautiful to have your children present and to really sort of soak up that intimacy and that magic of birth and have it there in your own home it kind of permeates the house and everybody's in this kind of love state you know because yeah. because giving birth you know it, it's a huge release of oxytocin the hormone of love and you know that that hormone actually acts as a pheromone it's um transmitted between individuals through the this organ in the nose of vomeronasal organs so you know that's why that time after birth that hour after birth is, is basically a love fest everybody falls in love with everybody and it's designed <laughs> to be like that you know the baby and mother fall in love with each other the mother falls in love with the midwife the partner falls in love with the mother I mean everyone you know like it's it's palpable in there and, and in fact um, I'll tell you a story so when I do workshops and I talk about that like two times uh, midwives have come up to me and said I got a letdown I got a, a physical um, letdown of my milk in that um, atmosphere of the hour after birth from the pheromonal oxytocin so it's very powerful you know these things are it's not just a good feeling it's actually a powerful biological um, uh, um, event that happens in that hour after birth that's designed to bond everybody and I think in you know in terms of our human history it's probably designed to bond close members of the social group so that they'll look after the baby as well you know it's yeah. um and, and it's also the other thing to say about that is when you look at it through this lens you know it completely um uh, completely throws out that idea that women are doing this just to have a good experience because labour and birth are designed to be good experience. They're designed to have pheromonal oxytocin. They're designed to activate our pleasure and reward centres so that we fall in love with our babies. And that's actually critical for species survival, that we're rewarded and motivated, you know, to give this dedicated care that every mammalian baby needs. And as I said, you know, a mouse, a dog, an elephant, they don't go to prenatal classes to, to learn how to look after their babies, right? It all happens through the processes of labor and birth with this immense activation of the pleasure and reward centers. And they look after their babies because it feels rewarding, because it feels pleasurable. It's more rewarding than cocaine, actually, at that time through um, various research 
research. So yeah, so that, that's the thing. It's it, it is designed. You know, I say it, my sort of flagship um, article is called "Ecstatic Birth: Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor." It's exactly what's meant to happen, um, you know. And that's that was very much reinforced through my own experiences as well. Every one of them, you know. And it's kind of addictive, you know. The more babies you have, the more kind of ecstatic it becomes in some ways because those parts of your brain have been worked out again and again and again, and the pathways just flow. And it's it, you know, it can be immensely pleasurable. You know, it's the hormones of orgasm. You know, it's it's designed to be like that. Yes, I'm, I've been accused a few times of being addicted to having babies, so maybe there's something to those accusations. <laughs> well, it's species survival. Mother Nature wants us to have lots of babies, right, and wants us to breastfeed. I mean, making babies, having babies, breastfeeding, it's all the same hormones. It's all those reward and pleasure hormones. And I say it's a bit like Mother Nature patting us on the back, saying You've, you're doing a good job, do more of it, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's really beautiful. I I love hearing this acknowledged. I love it when I read an article that acknowledges this, and especially that about the pleasure. And I think I think that I mean we all realize that making the baby or hopefully making the baby is pleasurable. And then I think many of us are starting to realize that birth can be pleasurable, but maybe through the pain it doesn't feel pleasurable. But I think that the real place where we get taboo, um, Sarah, is with breastfeeding. That's that's. I just feel like a lot of women are ashamed to say that I find this to be pleasurable because then they feel like society will frown on them for doing something that is perhaps wrong. But breastfeeding is actually meant to be very pleasurable for both mother and baby. Well, that's right. And I think also we've got to look at breastfeeding through cultural contexts because that's not true and in, 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 in many cultures that women wouldn't have a problem enjoying breastfeeding you know what I mean I think that's a particular western and I've got to say particularly American concept we don't have that in Australia so much like no one in Australia is going to get their baby taken off them for you know <laughs> for saying it's a pleasurable thing you know and um, so it, it is a cultural context and you know in some cultures they're encouraged to feed the baby long term you know for years so so yeah that is a cultural context but, but just going back to the biology of it. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, when we when we give birth, we release oxytocin, hormone of love, hormone of pleasure, um, you know, um, calm and connection, relaxation and growth, stimulates the reward and pleasure centers, we relax endorphins, you know, that activate the reward and pleasure centers powerfully. We release prolactin, which is a calming, um, soothing, relaxing hormone as well. We release um, adrenaline, noradrenaline, also called epinephrine, noepinephrine, that's, that, you know, make us excited. So we have this ecstatic hormonal cocktail at that moment of birth and particularly the hour after birth. You know, I'm not saying that the, the contractions of labor or the rushes or expansions, however you call them, I'm not saying that those have to be pleasurable. I mean, it's a, such a unique experience with that. And I don't, I, I would never say that birth is designed to be painless. I don't believe that. But birth is designed to, to give us the hormonal support that we can transcend the stress and pain of labor. And that's the endorphins that put it into this altered state that we talked about. It's designed to give us the natural pain relief, which is endorphins and oxytocin. It's designed to, you know, as soon as the baby's born, that we're flooded with this neurochemistry of, of ecstasy, of euphoria, of reward and pleasure so that, you know, I say it's like the best first date ever, right? <laughs> You're meeting your partner, there's this partner, this biological, you know, partner that, that is essential for species survival in this atmosphere of total euphoria, you know, total ecstasy. And then that becomes associated with the baby. And every time you see the baby or think of the baby, it's a, it's a moment of pleasure for you so that you'll want to be with the baby. You know, you'll want to have your baby next to you. You won't want your baby in the next room because from a, you know, biological evolutionary perspective you know that the baby wouldn't survive if you put the baby somewhere else to sleep the baby wouldn't be there in the morning right so it's hardwired into us it's hardwired into our babies and our babies also get this pleasure stimulation of the pleasure centers through labor and birth so we have this you know, beginning of a great love affair as Michelle O'Donk calls it and it's essential it's essential for survival it's been essential for these millions of years of mammalian evolution and it's still hardwired into us as well Oh, that's lovely, lovely. So, Sarah, in your book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, you say that an, it's an undisturbed birth that helps to bring in Mother Nature's blueprint for safety, ease, and ecstasy. And like you mentioned, your flagship article on ecstatic birth. So can, could you talk about what what is an undisturbed birth, like your women in the middle of the night who 
who gave birth before you had a chance to get there? Can a mom have a care provider there and still have this undisturbed birth, still get these great hormonal benefits in this blueprint? Oh, yes, definitely. I'm not saying we should all go into a cave and give birth. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, when I when I do this talk, I actually go through a whole lot of ways that different animals give birth. And many, some animals are solitary birthers, like cats tend to be solitary birthers. But some animals, like elephants, actually have that tribe around them, which is, again, important in the wild to, um, you know, to have that protection and support from any predators. And apparently elephants in the wild, they form this circle and they sway in time with the labor mother and they soothe her with their trunks so a lot of you know (laughs) so it's really what what is it that makes you feel private safe and unobserved that's the key question and how can you set up a situation like that for your birth so you know it's totally possible in a hospital setting but it's difficult in a hospital setting if the doors open and people are coming in and out through the door that you don't know without knocking you know I, I say the ideal situation to have a baby is the same situation where you could make a baby. So it's really, it's about how you do that. How do you set that up? And, you know, there's a part of my workshops when we, we do a, um, we do a, a activity where we sit down in groups and talk about how can we undisturb birth. And many of the midwives that come to my talks, uh, my workshops that work in hospital settings. So, you know, things like putting a, you know, knock first sign on the door, like, um, you know, bringing your own familiar things into the hospital with you so that your smells are there, like your pillow to bury your face into so you can cut out some of that external stimulation. Um, staying at home as long as possible. That's a really good one because what actually happens and, um, I call it the snowball of labor. So <laughs> just going back a step, labor, labor is not a homeostatic event. It's not an event where everything's designed to stay the same like our bodies usually do, right? You know, yeah. um, labor is, is, a, is an accelerating, a snowballing effect where things start off small and get bigger and bigger. And that happens through a whole lot of positive feedback loops that happen in labor. I've just actually talked about these in my blog and my website about epidurals. There's a little picture there of the positive feedback loops of labor that make the hormone um, activity get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so that in the end, like a snowball, it's, it's virtually unstoppable. So at the beginning of labor, you know, if you move to hospital at the beginning of labor, particularly first time when these things haven't kind of happened in your body before, they're kind of new, even biologically new, you know, it's quite easy to to get like a, to get um what do you say distracted for those stress the mm. stress hormones to come in and slow down or even stop your labor you know you're not feeling private safe and unobserved but then what happens as a snowball gets bigger and bigger and all these positive feedback systems in labor you know um, accelerate the processes in other words you could say you're in active labor right as you get towards the end of labor you know, the, the snowball is so big it's virtually unstoppable and in fact stress at the end of labor has a different effect and um, I call this the saber-toothed tiger effect because it's kind of designed for us to give birth in the wild safely and easily, right? So in the beginning of labor, if you know the, the females in labor or your great-great-great, 500 great-grandmothers in labor and a saber-toothed tiger turns up at the beginning of labor, it makes much more sense to slow down or stop labor and give her the space to for fight or flight, right? But if this, if the um, saber-toothed tiger turns up at the end of labor when this the snowball has really built up and labor is virtually unstoppable at that point, it makes much more sense for the stress hormones to trigger a fast and easy labor. She scoops up her baby and run, and then runs away, right? So that's that's the biology yeah. of it, and that's in fact what happens. So a you know a, a, a stress or you know moving to hospital or you know something stressful happening at the end of labor is more likely to promote the processes of labor, whereas stress at the beginning of labor is more likely to inhibit the processes of labor, if that makes sense to you. So it's really a long story for why staying home as long as possible and then going to hospital at the last minute is a really good way to have an undisturbed birth, if you like, and to make the most of your laboring hormones and the snowball of labor. And there's multiple studies that show that, you know, the 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 more advanced a woman is in labor, the fewer interventions, the less likely she is to have a cesarean, et cetera, et cetera. Etc. So, and, and of course, you need to figure out what's going to help you to feel private and safe and unobserved if you do that at home. And you may 
want to have you know your own doula, um, a midwife that can come home with you, a supportive birth companion. You may want to have to be able to ring up the hospital and just you know check in with someone. Like you, you know you need to feel safe in whatever situation, and that is such a subjective experience, right? Um, so so that that's the thing to think about. What what's going to help me to feel private, safe, and unobserved? And that's an undisturbed birth. That's how you can set up um, a birth where you know your hormones are going to flow and you really get the most of these ecstatic hormones. And we talked a lot about the pleasure and reward of birth, but it's actually these hormones also promote safety for you and your baby. You know, we talked about the stress hormones, you know, in kind of environmental context promoting safety, but you know, some of these hormones um, um, help to um, help the baby in labor to um, to deal with the stresses of labor for themselves because the baby, you know, labor is a stress for the baby too, right? The baby's subjected to these intermittent um, contractions, which every contraction squeezes not just the baby but squeezes the placenta so in squeezing the baby yeah. cuts off the baby's blood supply to some extent but just like we're superbly designed our babies are superbly designed as well so what happens for the baby in, in this um, hormonal physiology is the baby gets a rush of adrenaline um, a noradrenaline late in labor that um, makes sure that the baby's heart and brain are well supplied with oxygen um, helps the baby's brain cells to be resistant to low oxygen levels um, gets the baby ready for the transition to life outside the womb clears the lung fluid, opens up the airways, increases the lung lubricant, the surfactant. Um, it gets the baby's um, fuels. It, it, it um, optimizes the baby's glucose, not just at the time, but builds up the baby's glucose fuels for that gap until the mother's milk comes in. It gets the baby ready for that the um, thermoregulatory transition, as we might call it, because um, just. Um, if I can talk a bit more about it. So, so you know, I, I say that the baby in the womb is a bit like in hotel de womb, hotel of the womb, right? That, you know, the, the, the um, nutrients are delivered to the baby, you know, 24-7 room yeah. service, the weights are taken away, yeah. the baby's warm and rocked and everything. And suddenly the baby's going to come out and have to do all those things for themselves. And some of those things can happen slowly, like the nutrition, you know, take about the baby a while to, you know, to get their own metabolic fuels going, but the breathing has to happen straight away. That's the number one thing. So this hormonal physiology that happens for the baby, the catecholamine surge, as it's called, actually um, prepares the baby for life outside the womb to make a successful and safe transition, particularly in terms of breathing. And there's a lot about this in my report, actually. I haven't mentioned that hormonal physiology of childbearing. If you if you Google that, you'll find it. It's also in the ecstatic birth article, which you'll find on my website, sarahbuckley.com, in the subscribe section. But basically, it, you know, when you understand how the catecholamine surge works and benefits babies, then you also understand what the problems are for babies who are born by a cesarean, in particular pre-labor cesarean, where there's none, not just the haunt this catecholamine surge doesn't happen but all the preparation that underlies all of these hormones but that underlies the catecholamine surge too doesn't happen for the baby so the baby born by a pre-labor cesarean is at a double advantage they're not quite ready to be born otherwise they would have triggered labor and secondly they haven't mm -hmm. experienced labor so you know they're more likely to have breathing difficulties we know that for sure they're more likely to end up in um, needing high levels of care for breathing difficulties most babies do get over that but that's a really big effect it's a big more morbidity as we say because the baby's going to be separated from the mother just at that time when the baby's ready to initiate breastfeeding that that's not possible um the baby can also have hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, because it hasn't had that catecholamine surge to stimulate the baby's metabolic fuels. The baby's not alert because it hasn't had the catecholamine surge to promote blood supply to the brain. The baby can also have difficulty um, keeping themselves warm because they haven't had that um, initiation of the baby's own thermoregulation, making their own heat, which they do through burning of brown fat. So understanding the catecholamine surge tells you all the problems that prelate cesarean babies can and actually do have as well yeah that's I just find that I find that so fascinating and it goes back it really goes back to what you already said and I think it's a I mean it's a huge problem that women I mean they're I meet women who are actually belittled for choosing natural childbirth and that it's implied that she's being selfish and she's putting her baby at risk because she's putting her quote-unquote experience before her baby's safety but what you're saying is that by her having this experience, she's actually creating safety for herself and for her baby. 
yeah, she's making the most of her hormonal blueprint, which is not just about ecstasy and pleasure. It's about safety as well. You know, and you can think back to all these, as far as we know, 63 million years of mammalian evolution. You know, that, that, that is the, the whole purpose of this reproductive evolution is safety. You know, it's, it's designed to be safety. The whole system is designed as a safer ease. It's designed to promote ease in labor and just going back to that, um, the predator stuff that we talked about, the saber-toothed tiger effect, you know, the shorter the mother's labor, and this is all mammalian species we're talking about here, the less exposure she has to predators. So birth is actually designed to be as efficient and easy as possible. It's designed for pleasure, as we talked about. It's designed to stimulate the mother's pleasure and reward centers so that she'll go on and give that dedicated care that every mammalian mother needs to give to her newborns. Every mammalian baby, they can't look after themselves when they come out. They need finishing off with breast milk, yeah? So safety, um, ease, um, pleasure, and also safety. So the whole thing is designed to um, support the baby through that transition that we talked about to, to, to add safety factors that help the baby to deal with that hypoxia, those low oxygen levels, that help the mother to deal yeah. with the stress and pain of labor, to give her, you know, the best transition. And, you know, we haven't talked about the, the pre-labor preparations that happen as well. This is an important aspect of safety, you know. The mother's going to, the, the, well, just the baby's catecholamine surge that happens on top of all these um, days and weeks of increasing um, sensitivity or we say receptor upregulation for the baby so that when the catecholamine surge comes in labor, the baby's system is maximally sensitive to it and it will be very efficient for the baby. And the same thing's true of the mother. You know, the mother has all these pre-labor physiological preparations that mean when these hormones come in in labor, the mother is maximally sensitive. For example, we know from actual measurements in real-life women that the number of oxytocin receptors in her uterus increases in the lead-up to labor. So at that onset of labor, her uterus is maximally sensitive so the oxytocin she releases during labor will make her will, will make her uterine contractions very efficient. And you know, the other corollary of that, of course, is if she's induced in labor, then by definition she doesn't have that peak number. It only happens in the, the, the physiologic onset of labor is a time that all these systems of term labor I'm talking about, all these systems are maximally efficient and effective. And um, one analogy I use when I give my talks, I say, you know, I show a picture of the, the William and Kate getting married and I say, you know, from Mother Nature's perspective, you know, that more preparations are needed for the birth of a baby than from the royal wedding. So, you know, the, the you know, induction of labor or pre-labor cesarean is a bit like William and Kate turning up at Westminster Cathedral a week or two weeks or even a month before the wedding and expecting everything to be the same and it's not going to be the same because all the preparations haven't happened. So again, you know, what, what can happen after pre-labor cesarean? The mother can have difficulties with breastfeeding because these preparations in her breast haven't happened. You know, the, the increase in receptors to the breastfeeding hormones, east, um, sorry, oxytocin and prolactin we haven't we know that from animal studies we haven't actually measured <laughs> receptor numbers in real life women's breasts if anyone wants to have that done on them they can put their hand up it's, uh, I don't recommend it actually <laughs> but you know what I mean we know from animal studies and of course this happens in humans because we need the same things you know we need a successful transition from hotel to womb to you know um, breast nutrition that's really important for the survival of the offspring so all these pre-labor preparations have to happen as well so again, for the mother as for the baby, there's a pre-labor cesarean. The mother misses out doubly. She misses out on the hormones of labor and birth and she misses out on the pre-labor preparations as well. Yeah, and I just, it's just so, it's, it fascinates me that complexity and, and also also the beauty of it. And I also think it's so validating for, for mothers to hear that, that this is a good thing and again that their bodies do know what to do. I think maybe shifting gears a little bit now because the number one question that I get about birth, once a mom decided I'm going to have a natural birth and I'm I'm going to do, you know, what it takes, I'm going to listen or not listen to the people who are telling me that I'm being selfish. But the number one question that I still get from women is, is how do I handle, you know, how do I handle the pain of labor? And number two is usually what do I do if labor is, it stops, it stalls, or if it's not going fast enough for care providers. And I actually feel like you spoke to that when you said that it's it's designed to be to be efficient. Mm. Um, but you mm. know what? How would you how would you speak to a mom who's concerned? I want to have a natural birth. I want to make sure 
that I honor this hormonal blueprint, but I'm really worried that it's going to hurt and I'm going to end up screaming instead of, you know, being ecstatic. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the it's the agony and the ecstasy, you know, and it's actually the same hormones. You know, when we when we under stress and pain, we release endorphins, which are also euphoric hormones. So you kind of can't separate them to some extent. I mean, I mean, some women do have painless births. I mean, that's totally a possibility. Um, for most women, that they are intense sensations. Like I don't think there's any way around that personally. You know, like I wouldn't, as I said, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell women to expect a painless birth. If that happens, it's a blessing. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's likely to be intense. You know, you've got this big baby coming through your body. So, you know, that's the reality of it. So how can we set ourselves up? I mean, everything that I've said, you know, is, tells us how our body sets us up. So our body sets us up with pre-labor physiologic preparation. So we get this increased number of receptors in our body, in our brain, in our breasts, so that when the this intensity of labor comes in we have some natural pain relief through oxytocin through endorphins you know um, we are um, in an undisturbed situation so that we can follow our instincts we can go within and see what it is that we need and you know it's it's a difficult question to answer because it really like a bit like the circumstances it really is going to be different for every woman in every labor you know with my yeah. first birth for example you know I, I was I'd done a lot of yoga and I, and I used a stopwatch and I figured out oh these contractions last 30 seconds and or 40 seconds or a bit longer you know towards the, the birth and then I'd have a break in between it's actually timed them oh wow if I just breathe and breathe and breathe and get over this and I'm going to have a break and that's what really helped me with that first one and you know I did different things you know breath sound and movement are always good tools you know what what do we do when we're challenging other situations and what kind of support do we need and how can we have the freedom to follow our own instincts. I think those are all the kind of questions to ask. And and also, you know, having faith in our bodies that millions of women all over the world are doing this at this very minute and millions of women have done yeah. it in the past. And, you know, we can tune into the sisterhood as well and really trust our bodies. And look, sometimes, you know, sometimes... There, you know, we do have this pain relief available and sometimes that is a good thing. You know, I'm not totally against interventions. You know, every intervention has its place, but we've got to consider what is the gap. You know, every intervention produces a hormonal gap. So, you know, we want to do, give it our best shot. We want to set ourselves up a situation where it's undisturbed as possible. We want to be free to use our breath, to make sound, to move as we need to. All of those things that we do in, in any kind of challenging situation. We want to have the people there that, that are going to help us to relax and support us. We don't want to have the people there that are going to make us stressed. That's really important. <laughs> and we want to have the freedom to tell people to come or go. That's really important too. You know, when you're in labor, you're the queen, you know, was, um, as, as Anna May says, if, you know, if a woman in labor doesn't look like a goddess, someone isn't treating her right. Yeah. So we're yeah. the center of, we're, it's women-centered care. We're the center of the circle. We need to have the ability, you know, the power to decide what happens in that space, you know, for ourselves, for our, our companions. Um, you know, so all of those things are going to put us in this situation where we can respond to whatever we need in that moment. And I can't tell you what it's going to be in that moment, but, you know, anything you can do to help you to um, relax in between contractions is going to be helpful, which is where I think mindfulness, yoga, you know, those kind of things are helpful too because for most women there's an intense contraction and then there's a space in between which is usually longer than the intense contraction. So, you know, how can you deal with that intensity? What what tools do you have um, to, to do that? And then how can you make the most of that space between the contractions as well? They're, they're kind of, you know, quite, you know, like, questions to ask yourself really like how can you do that and I know there's some childbirth education where they actually you know um, mimic some some stressful or painful thing I mean yoga is good for this because you often do put yourself into like a bit of a stretch but you know like pinching or putting your hand in cold water and then how are you going to deal with that like how, what do you do how can you relax into that and you know many women describe that the, the, the pain, it seems like pain at the start, and it's a bit like I described hormonally, but when you go deeply into it without resisting it, it can actually flip into pleasure. And I'm not saying that's possible. You know, it's going to happen for everyone all the time. It's kind of like almost like an advanced meditation technique. You know, how do you how do you be yeah. with the pain and be with the pain and be with the pain until you're not resisting it anymore and it can flip into pleasure. But 
And it certainly happens after the birth. And for some women, it does happen during labour as well. And <clears throat> everything I've said up to this point, you know, ha having a physiologic labour and birth, going into labour um, under your own steam so that you've got that full complement of receptors, of, re of, of readiness for labour and birth, of support, you know, hormonal support as well. All those things will help. And, and one more thing I want to mention, which is a little bit about how do we get labour going if it stalls. I mean, again, going back to those core requirements, private, safe and unobserved. How can, how can I feel or how can I help this woman to feel private, safe and unobserved in this situation? <clears throat> and I also mentioned previously that the hormones of having a baby are the same hormones of making a baby. So we've got exactly the same hormones and the same patterns actually. We've got oxytocin, we've got endorphins, we've got adrenaline, noradrenaline, we've actually got prolactin as well. So it's all the same hormonal orchestration for making a baby. So that gives us another whole set of tools. So actually the hormones of sexual arousal, of sexual activity can help us, can promote oxytocin and can get labour going again if it's stalled. I mean the first thing to say is what's in the environment? Like is there a reason why? Is there a good reason why this labour stalled? You know, is it something environment needs to change? But you know, many women have found sexual activity in labour to actually promote contractions which is obviously the biology of it. So you know, self-pleasuring, pleasuring with a partner. You've probably seen this film Orgasmic Birth, that's a beautiful way to kind of open up that possibility. Um, my friend Deborah, who's uh, made that film, Deborah Pascali Bonaro, she recommends that women actually take a vibrator with them in labour and it does two <laughs> oh functions. One, you, yeah, well, one thing, you know, it can, it can give you that boost of oxytocin, but secondly, just putting it on the bed, right, can clear the room out. So if you want to feel private, safe and unobserved, put your, put your vibrator on the bed and as she says, if that doesn't work, turn it on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's a whole, I'm not saying you need to do that, but there's a whole toolkit, you know, think, we can think creatively about it and have a whole toolkit of possibilities for ourselves to create, you know, basically private, safe and unobserved situation. And then, you know, if we do, you know, if we do want to, labour needs to go faster. And, 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 and one of the problems with that actually, you know, how fast should labour go? You know, it's not a mathematical event, right? And, you know, natural phenomenon don't, tend to follow mathematical, you know, formulas, you know, so, you know, you, you, you know, not every child walks at 12 months. I mean, it's an average, but if you yeah. said every child has to walk at 12 months, then, you know, you set yourself up for a lot of problems and the same thing, not every woman is going to dilate at the same speed, you know, and so to expect us to, to follow this kind of mathematical graph is, is not biological, it's not biology, it doesn't happen like that. So, you know, if you can set yourself up a situation where there's not those kind of expectations, that's ideal as well. So again, having your own midwife, your own doula, you know, being in a low technology setting like a birth centre or at home, you're much more likely to have flexibility around that. So, you know, you've got to do what's right for you and I don't think it's anyone's job to tell anyone else what's right for them, you know, but you need the information and to think about these things so you can set up the situation that's going to work for you, you know, and your unique and your family that's unique. Yeah, one off. Yeah. Just so many good thoughts there. And I think, you know, I, I just, as you're speaking and I'm thinking and reflecting and listening to you, I just, I hear things that, like you, you mentioned Ina May and she talks about, you know, a few of those things. Well, she was in, you know, in spiritual midwifery with all of this lovely hippie language. Um, but, you know, she gets to that too. It's just, you know, just smooch on your man and that sort of thing. And it really does. I think it really does do something for women. And I also, one of the things, I don't remember if she said it or if it was in one of the birth stories, but I think it may have been one of the moms and one of the birth stories, but the mother said, you know, I want it to get heavy. And when you were talking about kind of going in, you know, going into the contraction or the rush or whatever you want to call it, and you you almost transcend the pain. And this is an experience that I feel like I've had with my last few babies mm. especially is that it's very intense. I would define it as intense, but when I get to that place where, and by this time, this many babies, it, it feels familiar, but, um, you know, that familiar feeling that this is really happening and this baby's really coming through me right now, um, and just, just going into it, there's something freeing. The intensity is still there. For me, one of the things is I always feel desperately thirsty um, but seeing the contractions, which I think has a physiological reason too, but yeah. it's it's no longer I don't I no longer frame it in the thought of pain, 
but more in that, you know, I want this to happen. I want my baby to come. Mm. And it's just, it's really interesting for me to think about the hormones. And then, obviously, my births are anecdotal evidence, but so interesting, like you, my own births are inspiring and intriguing to me. And, and just looking at this and even thinking about how can I help other women through their yeah. experiences. And I, you know, yeah, and we could say, you know, from the hormonal perspective that when we resist the intensity of labor, we're kind of creating some stress, which the stress hormones are then going to counteract, you know, the hormones of labor and birth. So, you know, the ideal is to not resist the intensity of labor. And, whoa, that's a big, that's a big undertaking, right? It is. You know, but, but like all of it, I'm sure you've had this experience too. You know, we can also take it on. I mean, these are actually profound spiritual practices. You know, I think that, that you know, our, our own bodies as females take us into these, like, intense, challenging, but ultimately transcendent possibilities yeah. as mothers, you know, and in birth. And then and then that carries on into motherhood. I mean, all these hormones of breastfeeding we're talking about are also ecstatic hormones. It's designed to be pleasurable, rewarding, and, and kind of transcendent, really. Like, I, I, you know, my last baby, I, I um, you know, I really took on breastfeeding as a, like a meditative practice and I wouldn't do anything or not, not every time. Sometimes I'd be nursing at the keyboard, right? But, you know, sometimes I'd just sit there and breathe and feel, you know, all these hormones and my connection with my baby and it was totally euphoric, you know, it was a beautiful interlude, you know, we get these interludes in our day and, you know, that, uh, these hormones of labor and uh, of, of breastfeeding, uh, which are the hormones of labor and birth, are designed to keep rewarding us and keep connecting us to our baby and, you know, I remember going to a uh, was actually a, like a birth activist meeting, and I had my like I think he was like two, and I was breastfeeding him, and um, I remember I was, I was taking the minutes right, so I'm sitting there taking the minutes, it's all going well, and then I breastfeed my baby, <laughs> oh, my toddler, and and then I could feel my brace kind of turning really soft, like kind of turning into mush. I could actually feel these hormones coming into my brain, and they got kind of less sharp. But less and more soft, and it, you know, if you can go with it, it's a very beautiful feeling. And you know, we end up in these situations, unfortunately, you know, in our modern culture, where we're kind of pulled both ways, and it's difficult to go into those hormonal states because we're we're doing things that require our brain to be sharp, like operating heavy machinery and driving cars, for example. You know, at the same time, we're looking after babies and doing jobs, and you know, it's it, it's it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to be in those both of those kind of brain states of being very switched on and alert but also allowing that softness and that pleasure and that connection that our breastfeeding hormones are, are, are taking us into you know yeah it's just, it is it is an interesting place that we live in the modern world but I think that talking about it helps us to respect that and it helps us to think you know that that that, that softer place that you're talking about. And I, I have an experience similar to what you're talking about where I was I was sitting in a bookstore with a friend and we had been talking and I had my baby and I was nursing him and I just kind of, she's like, I can see the prolactin rush happening because, you know, you just start to get that drowsy, content feeling and all mm. that chit-chat and stuff doesn't matter as much. But I think that it's good for us as women to know uh, and to be validated that that, that part, that aspect of ourselves and, and of our being is of great value to our children and like you've been saying, to our entire species because sometimes that's not as valued today or it's implied that it's some sort of weakness or defect. I think and the other thing that I think about that, Kristen, is that, you know, when it is, you when you're, breastfeeding you're in a different state you're in a different hormonal state well when you've got young children for a start but the breastfeeding adds a whole nother level of hormonal biology on top of that so you're in a different what do you say mental state your brain's functioning differently you could say to people that aren't in that situation and I remember feeling sometimes like I was on another planet really like I, it was hard to connect to people in this kind of ordinary state you know when I was at times when I was breastfeeding especially the more I was breastfeeding when my babies were little and again to say that that's perfectly normal and natural that's how we're meant to be and you know what's missing in our culture is a, a community of other people that are in that state that you can kind of hang out with so you know my advice if you're in that and feeling kind of a bit you know feeling the juxtaposition of that with the way that the culture operates which is insane really like we're all going at this incredibly fast pace right but um you know breastfeeding slows us down and put it makes that makes us soft and receptive you know 
So if you can find yourself a community in some way where that's okay, where you can just enjoy that, I think that's really advantageous. So, you know, um, La Laisha League, we have breastfeeding association over here, you know, parenting groups, like attachment parenting groups, you know, somewhere where you can really, you know, feel normal, if you like, in, in, the, in that exceptional state that you're in, which is all designed to, you know, to make sure your baby survived, to have you attached to your baby, to have you physically connected to your baby, to increase your vigilance over your baby, to breastfeed your baby. I mean, it's all one hormonal system, you know. It's all, it's all about your baby surviving. Yeah, and it's, it's a beautiful thing too. It is. All right, Sarah. Well, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think the most important thing is however you can get yourself into a situation of trusting your body and trusting your baby. And a bit like I was saying with breastfeeding, you know, it's finding finding your tribe, finding a culture where that's normal so that you're protecting yourself to some extent against, you know, some of the, the negativity out there around birth and the negativity around breastfeeding and kind of attachment parenting being close to your baby. And, you know, because it is, it is biological. What you're doing is a biological imperative for our species and somehow we've kind of forgotten that. So, you know, you're in the stream of evolution doing that with your baby, with your birth, with your baby. And, um, yeah, just... Find find other people that are in that stream as well, and you know find a get, find yourself a culture where you know you trust your body, you trust your baby, you trust your child, and you know you trust life really. Yeah, that's lovely. Good trust to have. Hmm. Okay, where where can a listener go to get more from you or more about you, Sarah? Um, so, yeah, if you go to my website, which is sarahbuckley.com, uh, there's some blogs, some articles. You can also see links to my books. There's links to my report, Hormonal Physiology, if you want all the science. It's uh, quite scientifically intense, but that's available as a free download. If you search Hormonal Physiology in my name, you'll find that. Um, I have another website, Gentle Natural Birth, which has some membership for professionals. And at the moment, I'm working on some um, webinars. So... Um, check out my website, sarahbuckley.com, and see if I've got it up yet. I'm going to do put the ecstatic birth webinar up there, so that's something with a lot more information of, about what I'm talking about. And I also have DVDs with this information as well. Okay, that's great. Yeah, and you mentioned a few things. I tried to make some notes as we talked, but I was soaking in as much. But you mentioned a few articles, so I will try and get all of those up on the show notes so listeners can head over to the show notes and find links to everything that we have mentioned. Tonight. Yeah, that's that's, that's um, the blog with the um with the um positive feedback circles. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send you yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you again. It's been wonderful for me and I'm certain that it's been wonderful for our listeners. And uh and I've been really blessed to have you here. Thank you, and thank you for all the beautiful information that you put out there too, you know, from your own experience and just creating this beautiful haven for mothers and babies. Thank you, Kristen. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you, Sarah. Okay, pleasure. Again, I just want to thank Sarah so much for being a guest on the podcast. I hope that you got as much out of it as I do. Remember, share this episode with friends. This is information that all birthing women need to know. If you're interested in anything Dr. Buckley mentioned on the podcast, be sure to head over to birthbabylife.com and check out this episode's show notes. I have links to everything that you need on there. And if you'd like to hear more from me or get notified when there's a new podcast episode, head over to trustbirth101.com and sign up for the newsletter. I will talk to you next week, and I hope that you have a truly blessed week this week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.